ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. They say disruption is radical change to an existing environment. I'm sure I did this a lot in my high school science class, but in science today, it seems we have not so much disruption at all. What's going on? That's what we're going to grapple with on this episode of ID the Future. And doing that, grappling alongside me is Dr. Paul Nelson. He's a philosopher of science on adjunct faculty at Biola University. And he's someone who does a good job of explaining these sorts of issues for people like me. Welcome, Paul, to ID the Future. Thanks. I'm always glad to be here. Yes, it's always always good to have you here to help with these things. I'm going to sort of quickly set this up for listeners, what we're talking about, and then we can dig into some of the more juicy details and what they all mean about this uh, recent news. There's been a lot of news, at least in the science world, about some, I would say, groundbreaking research, or at least lots of research about research. And it's been pretty disruptive itself, surprisingly. The researchers examined 45 million manuscripts and over 4 million patents issued since the 1940s, and they found a decrease, a 90% decrease in disruption in the sciences. And for me, disruption might be more generally what you'd call you know, groundbreaking research and discoveries that inspire new and different research and leads to profound changes, innovation in the world, and so on. Interestingly, one science writer pointed out that despite a more than tenfold inflation-adjusted increase in U.S. government spending since 1955, quote, it feels like we're doing a lot more research and getting a lot less out of it. If you think about since the 20th century, we, you know, you, even before that, steam engine, first airplane, first personal commuter, computers, DNA's double helix maybe the Human Genome Project, all these things were happening. And if you imagine we've had a 90% decrease in breakthroughs like this since the mid-20th century, it's a bit hard to comprehend. So I guess we start, Paul, with what is disruptive science, and then we get into why that matters, because life goes on working for me, but shouldn't it be getting better as well? Well, I I like your introduction, and uh, I should point out as background that for some time there's been widespread concern among both scientists and science observers. So we can think of the authors of this study as, I guess you could call them diagnosticians of scientific advance. And with this very large data set that you described, they're looking at patterns of citation. For instance, earlier publications are scientists citing in their own research and so forth. And they find this very striking, consistent pattern of decline in what they describe as disruptive research. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned this background concern. Peter Thiel has this famous aphorism that he coined that's been widely cited. He said, we were promised flying cars, Instead, we got 140 characters, right? Twitter, right? right? Where if you go back in into a science writing of the mid-20th century, you see 
sort of prophecies about, you know, in the year 2000, we will have X, Y, and Z, these remarkable innovative technologies. And yes, there have been some of those, but what Teal points out is our expectations have actually been disappointed with respect to ongoing breakthroughs. So uh, Michael Park, the first author of this study in Nature, which by the way is open access, so if the listeners are interested, they could go download the paper for themselves. The title is Papers and Patents Are Becoming Less Disruptive Over Time. Park, remarkably, is a PhD student, and this study has really put him on the map. He's at the University of Minnesota. He and his co-authors define a disruptive publication as a paper or patent that kind of cleans out the competition earlier. So that when you look at citation patterns of what people are citing, of course, when you publish a scientific paper, you have to give a bibliography. You have to give support from the existing literature for what you're doing. And a disruptive publication is cited itself, right? It, it, it breaks new ground. So a, a kind of paradigm or exemplary a case of this is the Watson and Crick 1953 paper on the structure of DNA. At the time, Crick was still a graduate student. He hadn't even finished his PhD yet. Watson was Watson was a postdoc, but the two of them in a very short paper, I think it was just like a page and a half long, broke new ground. And then that paper itself gets cited in earlier attempts, like Linus Pauling's attempt to solve the structure, are not cited. So the contrast class to disruptive is consolidating. Consolidating work tends not to be cited by itself, but rather it's adding on to an existing stream or body of research. So you have this contrast between disruptive and consolidating. And what Park and his colleagues did is they defined a metric, which they called the CD metric for consolidating disruptive. And they give a numerical interval of minus one to consolidating, crossing over to plus one for disruptive. So everything that they're measuring is going to be in that minus one to zero to plus one interval. And I was very impressed by the paper, by the persistence of this finding over a whole range of different metrics we can talk about. And I think that it, it's actually, I like your comment earlier, Rob, about it's kind of a meta comment. The disruptive paper is being disruptive, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, there's a lot of details here that we could go into, but that's basically what they're doing. So does the decline in disruptiveness, does all of this lesser disruption, I guess you'd say, how does that correlate with linguistic or semantic shifts? And, and why would linguistic or semantic shifts matter as much in science? Well, one of the tools that uh, uh, someone like Park can use to measure these patterns is the verbs and nouns that are used in science papers themselves. So, are the authors of the science papers coining new terms? You know, if you make a discovery, uh, let's say like occurred in the molecular biological revolution that three uh, nucleotides code for a particular amino acid, that needs a name. So they came up with codon, right? 
or the discovery in the in the late 1950s that there was this molecule called transfer RNA. That needs a new term. So when you're breaking new ground, you need names for the things that you're finding. Quark, right? The list goes on and on. So Park and his colleagues were looking for these semantic or linguistic indicators of novelty, where novel terms and phrases are entering the scientific literature. And what they found is, no, they're not. There tends to be a consistent pattern of decline in the introduction of novel terms, meaning that the same terms that were already being used decades earlier are still in currency. And the verbs like we discovered, we found, we predicted and uh, observed the following versus we confirmed, we enhanced. Picture for yourself different sets of verbs, one of which is uh, one set of verbs indicates breaking new ground, finding new things. The other set of verbs indicates we refined a technique we enhanced a particular method and so forth. Again, you see this striking pattern of decline. So yeah, there are semantic linguistic indicators that disruption is dropping off. It's kind of interesting to me that the words you're describing seem to indicate the initial creation, the initial disruption, I suppose. Uh, The words tend to be things, you know, it was more like, produce or determine, I think you said, or maybe that was in the article, but they're things that can only come from a mind. Yes. I mean, an AI chatbot, which everybody's talking about now, right? It can improve or enhance or collate or sort of, you know, put together things, but it's not producing or even really determining. So it seems like to be disruptive, it's got to come from an agent of thought, right? Oh, I I totally agree. And one of the deeper messages of this paper, I think, is that scientific creativity involves risk. Someone has to have the guts, to put it bluntly, to pose a hypothesis that could turn out to be wrong. If you're concerned to make sure your funding keeps coming in and you know, there are a variety of metrics. It's too detailed to go into in this podcast, but maybe at some later date, we could look at the actual metrics that are used, for instance, in physics to judge productivity. How many papers are you? is your lab churning out a year? Uh, how, how often are you being cited and so forth? It's on that basis that funding is awarded. It's on that basis that tenure decisions are made. So if someone is very carefully tending his or her career, it may be the last thing they want to do is to put a risky, groundbreaking new hypothesis out there uh, that may turn out to be wrong. And risk and creativity, that comes from an agent, right? It's not something that you can automate. Yeah, it it is intelligent design. Yep, you've got it. (laughs) To use a phrase. Um, (laughs) Where have I heard that before? (laughs) um, You had pointed out an influential book, The End of Science by John Horgan, which you said he can kind of be seen as predicting this pattern of disruptive decline. And that he wrote, quote, 
I argue that science has entered a period of permanent normality. There will be no more insights into nature as revolutionary as the theory of evolution, the double helix, quantum mechanics, relativity, and the Big Bang. Why not? Because these profound discoveries are true. Put them together and they form a map of reality that, like our maps of the Earth, is unlikely to undergo significant changes. Science, in other words, is a victim of its own success. What do you think of Horgan's take on that? Well, I'm not sure, first of all, that he even believes it himself. And here's why. In that same article, which he published on January 5th, you know, responding to this amazing paper in Nature, he says, I've spent, oh, this is a quote, I've spent the last two and a half years, or excuse me, two plus years studying quantum mechanics. The more I learn about the theory, the less sense it makes. <laughs> so one thing I love about Horgan is he's just wonderfully honest, almost to a fault. And what he's saying is there may be revolutions to come in physics because as he looks at its foundational theory, quantum mechanics, he finds it's incoherent. Now, you might say it's in the nature of a revolution that you can't anticipate it. You know, that's why it ends up being a revolution. It sneaks up on you. But I think Horgan knows enough of the history of science that if he were in our conversation today, he would acknowledge that in periods of science, when people say everything's been discovered, it's all just a mopping up operation after this point, they are bound to be wrong. You can find statements like this in the late 19th century about Newtonian physics, where it was, you know, we just are going to refine, the, you know, a few spaces past the decimal point, right? Everything's been determined and it's all settled. And nature, she doesn't cooperate. She finds a way to surprise you. I wouldn't be an intelligent design theorist if I thought, for instance, that Horgan was right about the current theory of evolution. I think it's it's defective in several different ways, in multiple areas. I, I don't have the competence to, to speak to the other theories that he lists there, but in the in the area I know best, historical biology, origin of life, evolution, I think that, that what we have in our hands at the moment is just woefully inadequate to the phenomena. So I have no expectation that we've got an accurate map of reality with respect to biology. And that's what makes science fun. As much as I admire Horgan, I read, I remember reading End of Science when it first came out. 1996. So it's been out for a while. And I want to give him every bit of credit. He saw this pattern clearly back in the late 90s or the mid to late 90s of a kind of stagnation in breakthroughs. And I'll tell you, if you read in different areas of theoretical science, particularly right now in physics, for instance, read the work of Sabina Hassenfelder in Germany, she complains bitterly about the stagnation in her field, that no real progress is being made. I think if Horgan revisits his article in five to 10 years, he will say, you know, I probably shouldn't have said that because I think nature is endlessly surprising. The history of science as an, in, an inductive sample shows us case after case of 
complacency about the state of our knowledge being shaken up by new findings. It is interesting that the, there's a sort of hubris there, I guess, that we figured it all out. There's nothing more. Uh, you know, it's uh, this is all there ever was, all there ever will be. You know, he lists all these things that are just like five things have solved all of science, you know, evolution, the double helix, quantum mechanics, the Big Bang, so on. And yet <laughs> there's got to be, I, I would think like you, that we're going to be drastically surprised. We're going to be amazed by certain things that are found. And actually it is happening it's just that you don't always hear about it. And that's maybe because of what they were mentioning in the article, incremental science, which is science that's going on every day, I guess, sort of that doesn't capture the headlines, is making some progress. And there was one writer who said, you know, you have to have a balance of disruption and incremental science. But those two things together lead you, push you forward. And there have been times in history where we must have had a certain you know period of time where there wasn't some sort of disruptive discovery and then all of a sudden there is an explosion that comes right of of these amazing things that are discovered and the creativity that results from that and the innovation that trickles out into the daily lives of all of us you know so it just seems surprising that he would yeah we've we've kind of figured it all out we're a victim of our own success well, it's interesting. Uh, one can imagine having a biologist like Michael Levin at Tufts sit in with Horgan and ask about, for instance, bi the biological community's understanding of the nature of the developmental process. Is it run by DNA or are there higher level systems in animals that are essential for their normal development. And I think Mike Levin would say to Horgan, look, our textbook models are just wrong. When, when a scientist becomes convinced that the received theory is wrong, he or she is not content to sit on that, <laughs> right. right? They're not going to sit on their hands. They're not going to keep their mouth shut. In, in multiple areas of biology where I have some uh, familiarity, scientists like Dennis Noble in the UK or scientists I know in Israel who are deeply unhappy with the state of current theory and are pushing hard to break new ground. I like to think of nature as sort of a third party, if you will. Nature hides her secrets well, but she does let them out from time to time. And when she does, they, they shock us, they surprise us, and they change the way that we put questions to the living world. So my expectation is that this study, which really makes use of wonderful metrics and tools, and I really admire Park, I expect to see more interesting work from him and his colleagues, this study will encourage people to think about how can we have a balance in science between consolidating work, which is necessary, and disruptive groundbreaking work. I think you, you, you said a moment ago there's a need for both, and there is a need for both. But if disruption is being extinguished by scientific practice, and I'll tell you, Park and his colleagues say the problem really is 
There's so much that you need to learn just to get a PhD and then to go on and get your own lab and so forth that you end up focusing more and more attention on a narrower and narrower slice of reality. That mode of looking and, and asking questions by its very nature is not going to lead to disruption. And they point at some patterns like self-citation. I've been reading about the self-citation stuff as well, and this growing propensity for scientists. Some of them, one person was singled out in an article, citing themselves 94% of the time, you know, in the the citations to that person's work were from themselves, and they have hundreds, maybe thousands of articles out there, or these self-citation farms where scientific teams all working together just only cite you know, the few people that are co-authoring with them in a circle. And suddenly that's the preponderance of references on a subject. It becomes self-referential. And if you're all only looking at the same thing and don't have somebody with a new discerning viewpoint, you know, how do you get anything new? How do you disrupt anything? That That is problematic. There's no question about it. And what becomes especially frightening is when the funding is tied into that right. same tied into that same circle. And again, maybe it's a, the old-fashioned realist in me, but what I see is that nature, again, she's independent of us, thank God. She will say, look, you know, you, you're focusing all your attention on X, but in fact, the answer is Y. And until you can lift your head from your microscope, lift your head from your lab bench, and refocus and look at why you are not going to break any new ground. I think I take a great encouragement from the history of science, looking at people like Einstein, a patent clerk, right, in mm -hmm. Switzerland. You know, no funding to speak of, really no experiments. He was just reading the existing literature, you know, in, in his sort of miracle year, as it's called, 1905, on the basis of what was out there already there in the literature and his own very careful thought and creativity, he comes up with special relativity and the other breakthroughs of that year. Or I look at other figures like uh, Gregory uh, Mendel, right? Here's a monk, you know, breeding peas in a monastery. <laughs> and uh, again, you know, he's not getting National Science Foundation funding to the tune of, you know, six, seven figures and so forth. Right. What's he doing? He's working hard and he's thinking carefully. Yeah, it's it's the thinking carefully part is the hard part, I think, because when you get to that self-citation problem that seems to be coming up more and more, you have this thing where you write the same thing because you're getting more work. You know, it goes back to the government funding and raising money for it. And if everybody's all kind of staying on the same page, we don't want to upset the apple cart, so to speak. It is hard to put those new risky ideas out there. You almost have to be just a clerk somewhere looking at this from the outside going, you got to be kidding me and examining it, right? And then risking, because maybe your risk level is lower, this what might have been considered a crazy idea. And it turns out that you've got a new way of thinking about someone. But when you're caught up in that whirlwind of just the same thing over and over, you get some incremental 
science, some some little advances. You know, you get a new updated driver for your program on your computer, but you're not getting a new program. Right. And actually, this ties into something that I uh, mentioned in my Paradox of Consensus uh, presentation, yes. uh, which will be linked at the Discovery uh, site. Thomas Gold was a physicist at Cornell. He actually didn't have a PhD, but he was a remarkable figure. He worked with Fred Hoyle and Herman Bondi on the so-called steady state theory of the universe, physical cosmology, which lost out to the Big Bang, but brilliant guy and really very brave and innovative thinker. And he said once, in choosing a hypothesis, there is no virtue in being timid, right? <laughs> be be bold. And he himself was consistent to that philosophy. He proposed an idea he called the deep hot biosphere, uh, which argued that uh, the formation of natural gas and oil in the Earth's crust was due to the action of microbial life deep in the crust, hence the term deep hot biosphere. I think he published this in 1999. In any case, it met with tremendous resistance. And he was he was brave. He was gutsy. And in 1989, 10 years earlier, he published a paper called New Ideas in Science, where, uh, Rob, he describes the very thing you were just sketching a moment ago, which is what he calls the herd effect. Right. So imagine that you're being asked to evaluate a, um, a current theory on the numerical interval, interval zero to 10 where zero is it's bound to be overturned tomorrow and 10 is it's going to be confirmed by every finding in, indefinitely into the future. So it's a scale, right? Zero, you're sunk. 10, you've got a Nobel Prize waiting for you. Everything's going to fall in place and all the findings, all the new findings, let's say in physics, are going to confirm your hypothesis. So you're a, let's say you're on a National Science Foundation Evaluation Committee, and you say, well, I don't think it's going to fail, but I'm not sure it's going to be confirmed. So I'm just going to be moderate and reasonable, and I'll score it five. Okay. <laughs> what Gold points out is he says, each round of decision-making, and this is a quote now from his paper in 1989, each round of decision-making has the consequence of essentially taking the initial curve, that's the curve of opinion I've just described, and multiplying it by itself. Now, we understand the mathematical consequence of taking a shallow curve and multiplying it by itself a large number of times. What happens in the mathematical limit, it becomes a delta function at the value of the initial peak. So what a delta function is, is the peak rises and continues to rise around the initial bump. So let's say in your first survey of your National Science Foundation colleagues, you're making funding decisions, you get a cluster of scores, maybe a four, a six, several fives, and you get a little lump there at five. And then you go out and solicit opinion, and what happens is I'll get a lot more fives, and that curve starts to rise. And what Gold says, is this, is this is mutually reinforcing. Quote, if you go for long enough, you will have created the appearance of unanimity. It will look as if you have solved the problem because all agree. And of course, you've got absolutely nothing. 
What you have is extinction. This is now close quote. Uh, what you have is extinction of opinion at the extremes of the curve, at the zeros and the tens. And people just sort of want to be in the middle of the herd. It's nice and warm. It's comfortable there. You're not taking many risks because you're surrounded by a lot of other sheep. And you get this delta function of apparent unanimity. And in fact, you haven't you haven't really determined anything at all. And what Gold says is to make progress in science, somebody has to take the risks, propose the new ideas, break from the herd. He said the herd effect kills scientific progress because all the sheep want to stand at the center and they end up piling up in the middle of the herd and there's no progress at all. And I think he's right. And if you think about your own, the way that you or I sort of land ourselves on the spectrum of opinion, we all want to appear moderate and reasonable. Well, sometimes the best thing to do for, for breakthroughs is not to be moderate and reasonable. It's to take a risk and you know propose a new a new idea, a new hypothesis. Anyway, I recommend this paper to the listeners because I think Gold was true to his own philosophy of exploration. And I think there's a lot of insights there. And also, you know, consult my PowerPoint, which will be available as a PDF at the Discovery site, The Paradox of Consensus. Science has to have a mixture of conservative behavior and risky behavior. Uh-huh. And when you've got all risk, you get chaos. When you've got all conservative behavior, you get stagnation. And we need to figure out a way to to nurture both. One of the reasons I love being a fellow at Discovery Institute is there are risk takers. <laughs> you know, we've got we've yes. got a lot of people who are willing, for whatever reason, to you know to be out there and take a risk. And I think that's healthy. Uh, we are going to post a link to your presentation on the paradox of consensus at idthefuture.org. But tell us a little bit of, more about that. And at some point, that may become a podcast in and of itself where we discuss it in more detail. But I'd like you to explain it to people so that they know what you mean by that term. All right. So we hear a lot about follow the science, right? During the COVID pandemic, it was a phrase that just you heard it innumerable times follow the science follow the consensus listen to the experts and so forth but there's a paradox there and let me unpack that for the listener by way of a historical episode when i was a student uh and when my wife was a medical student the cause of ulcers was thought to be genetics stress bad diet excessive alcohol consumption, and so forth. And that was textbook orthodoxy. And a very brave MD in Australia, Barry Marshall, said, you know what? I bet it's it's a, a pathogen. I bet it's actually an infection. And he did something very brave. He infected himself with a bacterium. Wow. Uh, yeah, right? Talk about true to your own philosophy. It's H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori. He infected himself with this bacterium, and sure enough, he developed an ulcer. And he faced tremendous resistance from the medical community because they said, we already know. We already know the answer. Uh, He says, in 1982, the cause of peptic ulcers was already known, quote unquote. 
Ulcers were caused by excessive amounts of acid secondary to personality, stress, smoking, or an inherited tendency. So he says nobody wanted to, to upset the apple cart, right? And in his Nobel lecture, he won the Nobel Prize for this research in medicine. In 2005, he said, quote, I realized that the medical understanding of ulcer disease was akin to a religion. No amount of logical reasoning or experimental evidence, I'll say parenthetically, could budge what people knew in their hearts to be true. Ulcers were caused by stress, bad diet, etc. A bacterial cause was preposterous. Why is this why is this important to the what I'm calling the paradox of consensus? To make an advance, Marshall had to say to the consensus, you know what, I think you're wrong. And in saying that, he puts himself in a vulnerable position. He steps outside the herd. He's not in the nice warm center anymore. And he says, look, I think there's evidence here that what we thought was knowledge is no such thing. Of course, Barry Marshall himself had to learn the medical consensus. He had to have some foundation from which to break. So the paradox that we see in science is everybody has to learn the consensus. I learned consensus neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory from 1980 to when I defended my dissertation in 1997. That was 17 years of learning the consensus. It's only when you have that in hand, when you have that knowledge in hand, that you can break from it. So science education is is inculcating into students what's the consensus, right? But we can't stop there because if we stay with the consensus, nature can never teach us anything new. So you see the paradox. You need the consensus to be educated, but you need to be able to break from that to learn something new. In my in my presentation, I give other examples of this where if you know, some investigator had followed the consensus, he would have made a mistake. And the history of science is replete with these episodes. Brave people coming out of the herd and saying, you know what, herd, it's nice and warm in there, but I actually think you guys are wrong and let me show you why. I think it's an interesting talk and I hope that people will check it out. It sounds fascinating. And I want you to remind people what decade it was that Barry Marshall infected himself? Uh, it would have been, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly. I think it would have been the 1980s. 80s or 90s, okay. But the key thing is 1980s and 1990s, I think, because we think these sorts of things, these sorts of wow moments in science happened a long time ago, and that back then, yes, of course, we overturned things we knew were wrong. But we feel like now, of course, we know it all, right? Um, <laughs> Corrigan has said we figured it all out. It can't ever be turned on its head until someone infects themselves and proves that this, in fact, does change. And so this is, this is actually a modern example of this. This didn't just used to happen. It's happening right now. And you sent me that paper by Thomas Gold, and I think it's the same paper you mentioned a little bit ago, he yeah. has an idea in there about science court and this idea of ideas being examined by scientists, not the ones working on it or who are invested in it or have stand to make money from it or any of that, but scientists from other fields who know how to examine an idea scientifically, but maybe aren't 
the detailed experts, they would be part of the jury, the scientific jury, which I think does sound like a good idea and that these uh, kind of controversial, you know, for lack of a better word, ideas should be examined that way. But what happens when your jury even is infected by a herd mentality, maybe? You know, uh, Rob, a beautiful example of what you've just described occurred when the Challenger disaster was being investigated. I don't know if you remember this, but Richard Feynman, the physicist, Nobel laureate in physics, was serving on that investigative committee. And I mean, this was in effect a kind of a science court for what happened. Why did the Challenger blow up? He had a flair for drama and he had a glass of very cold water uh, at a press conference sitting on the tabletop. And some of the O-ring sealant material, sort of, I, I can't think of a good descriptor, kind of like a, a a caulk that you might use to seal tile, right? But of course, mm -hmm. high tech for, uh, you know, a rocket and a metal clamp. And what he did is he put the, this sealant in the clamp and put it in the cold water. And all the reporters are there and they're watching. And he showed, just in a very, very simple tabletop demonstration, that cold temperatures reduced the ability of this sealant to do its job, right? And if you remember, when the Challenger blew up, it was launched on a day that was cold. Yes. And the sealant was not adequate. Hot gas came out, and the thing blew up, and several people lost their lives. So Feynman would have been you know, an ideal person, he's dead now, but he would have been an ideal sort of person to serve on that kind of a of a investigative court. I actually think that the scientific community at large performs that function, maybe not as well as it should, but I have great confidence in the ability of nature to get her signal through to us if anyone is listening. And I'll tell you, a scientist who's convinced that something is wrong I've seen this in my own family. They will not shut up. You can't silence them. I think whatever we can do as a community of taxpayers, frankly, I mean, it's it's the listeners' tax money that goes to the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. Whatever we can do as a community to encourage the kind of science court idea that you've described maybe uh, could be formalized. It's going to it's going to lead to healthier, more open, transparent investigations. And I, I, you know, again, I've said it now probably for the fourth time. Nature is our ally, and she will be there either opening up or withholding her secrets, depending on how we behave when we put questions to her. That is right. You know, it doesn't matter what any court, scientific or otherwise, thinks. Uh, the facts, if you follow the the evidence where it leads, the facts are the facts, and you hope that people can see it and understand it. Maybe that's the, the issue to a certain extent. This has been a great conversation, Paul. I think we could go on probably for another <laughs> couple of days, actually. Um, again, I want to let people know that the articles that we've referenced and Paul's presentation, The Paradox of Consensus, are going to be available in the show notes for this episode at idthefuture.org. You can go and check that out there. And of course, you can follow all of this uh, 
back and forth on evolutionnews.org as well. And I'm sure that we'll have some articles and things about this there. And you may even be writing more about the paradox of consensus there. Is that right? Yes, I'm going to do a short article talking about the presentation. And I'll try to include some some links to really interesting work that goes deeper into the nature of agreement. What are the good things that come out of agreement and what uh, are the bad things? You know, consensus consensus around a false theory, that's a problem. And, uh, you know, plenty of puzzles to mull over. Yes. So be sure and follow all of that at evolutionnews.org and idthefuture.org. And uh, I want to thank Paul Nelson for being with us on this episode. We will be back, I'm sure, for some other interesting discussions in the future. This is Robert Crowther, Center for Science and Culture and ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.